What a joy it has been to be here. These few days have just sped by, for me at least, and it has been wonderful to, to be here and worship with you and share with you and get into some of your homes and sit down over a meal and eat together. And You know, I just thought about it as we were sitting here that uh, tomorrow I'm back in the office grinding away at some things, getting ready for a board meeting that's coming up. And I will have on my mind Riverview. You have a special place in my heart. And when those tasks of my work with conference happen, go on, I'm going to be thinking about Riverview and how God is at work here and it will make my work more joyful knowing that those details that I take care of are in support of congregations like you that are on the front lines of ministry, being the salt and light in your community, holding forth the truth. What a joy, what a privilege. I've said a number of times that, that I like stories and the lessons that we can learn from stories, and tonight is, is going to be no different. <clears throat> How many of you have, have ever heard of Hansen's disease? Anyone heard of Hansen's disease? There's a few of you that have. I guess it's a, really it's a tribute to uh, modern medicine, I guess, that, it's, that we know very little about Hansen's disease, which is actually... The more familiar term to us is leprosy. Few, if any of us, have probably ever seen a person with leprosy. We just know it as a terrible disease that we read about in the Bible, and it would probably be safe to say that in Bible times it was the most feared disease that you could possibly have. Now, we know something about quarantines and fear of disease and everything for the last few years, but not to the level of those who experienced leprosy. Our encounter with Jesus this evening takes us to the story in the Gospels of one who suffered from leprosy and was healed by Jesus. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 8, 1 to 4, just to give us the, the biblical background for this, this story. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, talking about Jesus. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cured of, lepro of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And that's it. That's all we read about this guy. His story is mentioned in three of the Gospels, but none of them give much detail. Do you ever... I, maybe I'm the only one that does this, but do you ever read a story like this in Scripture and you wonder, what is the rest of the story? 
what is the story behind this guy coming to Jesus? Now, we don't know. But I hope you can allow me to imagine with you tonight what his story might have been. Max Licato, in his book, Just Like Jesus, actually does that. He imagines what the rest of this man's story might be, and he wrote it up, and I want to share that with you this evening. So imagine with me that we are in Bible times, and I'm the man who was cured by leprosy, and I'm telling you my story. For five years, no one touched me. No one. Not my wife, not my child, not my friends. No one touched me. They, they saw me. They, they spoke to me. And for some, I saw concern in their eyes. I, I heard care in their voices. But I, I never felt their touch. There was no touch. No one touched me. What is common to you, I coveted a handshake, a warm embrace, a tap on the shoulder to get my attention, a kiss on the lips. Such moments were taken from my world. No one touched me. No one bumped into me. What I would have given just to be bumped into on a busy street. But it didn't happen. How could it? I wasn't even allowed on the streets. I was not permitted in the temple. I was not even welcome in my own home. I was a leper. I was unclean. And no one touched me. Until today. It all started one year at harvest. My grip on the side seemed weak. The tips of my fingers were numb, first one and then the others. Before long, I could grip the tool but scarcely feel it. And by the end of the season, the hand grasping the handle might as well have belonged to someone else. I, I couldn't feel a thing. I didn't say anything to my wife, but I know she suspected something. I mean, how could she not? I, I held my hand against my body like a wounded bird. One afternoon, I, I plunged my hands into a basin of water intending to wash my face, and, and the water reddened. My, my finger was bleeding, bleeding profusely. What had happened? I don't know. I, had I slid my finger over the sharp edge of a blade? I, I must have, but I, I didn't feel a thing. It's on your clothes, too, my wife said softly from behind me. I looked down at the crimson stain on my robe, and before I turned to look at her, I stood for the longest time over that basin of water, staring at my hands. Somehow, I knew my life was being forever altered. Do you want me to go with you to tell the priest, she asked. I turned and gazed into her moist eyes, and there was our little daughter standing beside her. I knelt down and stroked her cheek, but I didn't say a word. What could I say? I stood up again, and with my good hand, I reached out and touched my wife's shoulder and she touched mine, and that would be our final touch. Five years have passed, and no one touched me until today. 
The, the priest didn't touch me. He, he looked at my hand now wrapped in a rag. He, he looked at my face now shrouded in sorrow. I, I've never faulted him for what he did, but, but he held one hand over his face and extended the other palm forward. You are unclean, he said. With one pronouncement, I lost everything. My family, my farm, my friends, my future. My wife met me at the city gate with a sack of clothes, some bread and coins, but she didn't say anything, nor did those who had gathered. What I saw in their eyes was a precursor of what I've seen in every eye since, fearful pity. I stepped out, they stepped back. Their dread of my disease was greater than their concern for my heart. So they and everyone I've met since stepped back. Oh, how I repulsed those who saw me. Five years of leprosy had left my hands gnarled. Tips of my fingers were missing, as were portions of my ears and my nose. At the sight of me, fathers would grab their children. Mothers would cover their faces. Children would point and stare. The rags on my body couldn't hide my sores. Nor, nor could the wrap on my head hide the rage in my eyes. How many nights had I shaken my fists at an empty sky? What did I do to deserve this? Never a reply. Some people say I sinned. Others say my parents sinned. I don't know. I, I just know I grew so tired of it all, sleeping in the colony, smelling the stench, wearing the little bells around my neck to warn people of my presence as if I needed that. I mean, one look at me and the shouts begin, unclean, unclean, unclean. Several weeks ago, I dared walk the road to my village. I had no intentions of entering. Heaven knows I, I just wanted to look again at my farm, my fields, my wife. I didn't see her, but I saw some children playing out in a field. Their faces were so joyful, their laughter so contagious, that just for a moment I forgot that I was a leper, and once again I was a, a, a father, I was a farmer, I was a man. Infused with their happiness, I stepped out from behind a tree and straightened my back, and, and they saw me. They saw me, and they screamed, and they scattered. But one little girl, she stopped and looked back in my direction, and I don't know, I, I can't say for sure, but I think it was my daughter. And I don't know, I, I really can't say, but I, I think she was looking for her father. That look is what made me take the risk I took today. I know it was risky. I know it was reckless, but, but what did I have to lose? He claimed to be God's son. So either he would hear, hear my demands and heal me, or we, he would hear my complaints and just kill me. Those were my thoughts. I came to him a defiant man, moved not so much by faith, but by desperate anger. God had wrought this calamity on my body, so either he would fix it or end it. But then I, I saw him. And, and when I saw him, I was changed. Somehow I knew that he cared for me. Somehow I knew that he hated this disease as much as, no, even more than I did. And my rage became trust. 
My anger became hope. And, and I watched him coming closer and closer down the hill. A throng of people were around him. I waited behind a rock until he was just paces from me. And I stepped out. Master. He stopped and looked in my direction as did dozens of others. And suddenly a wave of fear swept across the crowd. Hands flew up in front of faces. Parents grabbed their children and the shouts began, unclean, unclean, unclean. But I scarcely heard them. I scarcely saw them. See, their panic I had seen a thousand times. But the compassion in his face I had never seen. Everyone else stepped back. But he stepped towards me. Toward me. I fell to my knees in front of him. And I said, Master, I know you can heal me if you will. Now, if he would have healed me with a word, I would have been thrilled. If he would have healed me with a prayer, I would have rejoiced. But he wasn't satisfied just speaking to me. He reached out and he touched me. He touched me. I will, he said. Be healed. Suddenly, energy flooded my body like water through a furrowed field. Where, where there was numbness, I felt warmth. Where there was weakness, I felt strength. And I stood up, and my back straightened. My head came up, and there I stood looking into the face of the Son of God. I'll never forget the one who dared to touch me. He could have healed me with a word, but he wanted to do more than heal me. He wanted to validate me, to honor me. Imagine that, unworthy of the touch of man, but worthy of the touch of God. There's a few details in that story that we know because it's in Scripture. There's many more details that we can only guess what was this guy's story. But if nothing else from that story, I want you to understand this was a person with a soul that Jesus reached out to and touched. And we see over and over in Scripture, this is the kind of person that Jesus was just drawn to. Over and over in Scripture, we see that, that this is the kind of person that Jesus was, was said that he was called to, that he was, this was his calling, this is who he, he ministered to. Jesus is inexplicably drawn to, to the broken, to the desperate, to the hungry. His harshest criticism, I said this a night or two ago, was reserved for those who were confident in their rightness and their right, self-righteousness was on display like the Pharisees who he, he referred to as snakes or whitewash tombs for those who were comfortable and satisfied like the church at Laodicea who he said he wanted to spew them out of his mouth or, or he, but he was moved with compassion 
for those in whom he saw a sincere desperation for his touch, in those who saw the poverty of their lives without him, those who saw their need of him and how empty they were without him. That, that's who he was drawn to. There was Zacchaeus, desperate enough that he climbed a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus called him down and he went to his house. Jesus is drawn to, to that kind of hunger and desperation. There was a widow so broken after losing her son, as Luke records it, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. He, he went up and he touched the coffin and the son came back to life. Jesus is drawn to that kind of, that kind of uh, uh, faith in him that he is the one who has the answers, that he is the one who has the power, that he is the one who has the ability to touch and to heal and to restore. There was the prostitute so morally bankrupt yet so passionate in her pursuit of, of Jesus and, and love and affection and forgiveness. And she comes and kneels at Jesus' feet and wetting his feet with her tears mixed with ex, this expensive perfume and wiping his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus do? He, he extends forgiveness to her. He, he loves her. He actually commends her to those who were gathered as an example of those who we're self-righteous and indignant at this scene. Jesus is drawn to those who recognize their need of him. There were 5,000 literally hungry people. At prayer time some time ago um, that, that we do among some CMC leaders we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, and, and for some reason that morning it gripped me in a new way. How Jesus in this time where they were trying to draw away and get some rest, and this crowd of people presses in, and, and he's teaching them, and the disciples say, send them away, you know, it's time to, it's time to eat. And, and, and Jesus says, feed them. He's moved with compassion. And the disciples, those like you and me, think about, well, how are we going to do that? And what's that going to cost? And, there's a, no, and Jesus just says, feed them. And he just starts breaking the bread that they have and feeding them. He's even drawn to literal hunger. On and on we could go, broken, desperate, hungry people passionately pursuing Jesus. And they are healed. They are loved. They are filled. They are blessed. This was Jesus' mission Someone read it last night in, in the devotional, Luke 4, 18 to 19. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what does this have to do with you and me and Riverview? One, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we talked about being salt and light. But we better be joining in Jesus' mission. When Jesus says, this is my mission, we better say that's our mission if we are followers of him. It's easy to get our focus on a lot of other things. But I hope that we as a church can honestly say that we, were, we are on mission with Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, physically, spiritually, 
emotionally, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. Secondly, I would say this as I reflect on how God's attention is turned towards those who recognize their need of him. Have you ever heard the expression, I think A.W. Tozer, back in the, maybe in the 50s or 60s, said it first, something to the effect of, of never, I don't know, is never follow or never trust a leader who isn't walking with a limp. Think about that a bit. Never trust a leader who isn't walking with a limp. And basically, what he was saying by that is, you know, a leader that's worth his salt And that could be any one of us, whether it's a leader in the family, a leader in the church. A leader worth his salt has been beaten up a little bit by life and has remained faithful through it and has responded in a way, in a posture of submission to Jesus Christ and to his word. And maybe they're limping a bit. But when they've remained faithful, that's a leader worth following. See, Jesus comes to, he ministers to, he touches those who recognize their need of him. God is not so impressed by our natural abilities and the pedigree that our abilities have earned us. He's the one who gave us our strengths. He's the one who created us. He's the one who gave us the abilities that we have. He's the one that created us with the capacity to develop skills. He's the one who gave us spiritual gifts. We're not gonna impress him with those things. We certainly aren't going to impress him with our self-righteousness. But he, he is drawn to our recognition of our need of him. And when we can truly say, it is not I, but Christ in me. When we can truly say, there is nothing in me, in my flesh, that, that can please or honor God. It is only Christ in me. God is drawn to that. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is It's so foreign to us. Here we are again running up against this upside down kingdom. When everything in our culture and our kingdom says, show your strength, you know, here we are where God says, in your weakness, that's when my power is made perfect. There's an incredible story in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Kings chapter 4. 
Second Kings chapter four, I'm, I'm gonna read this, the, the first seven verses. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside. Let me repeat that line. Don't ask for just a few. (laughs) Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. This is an amazing account of God's power and his provision. And there's so much in here that that just jumps out to me and makes me ask, what? Now, why? And how did this happen? And and what does this mean? But I just want to focus on one of those questions, and that's this. What determined the amount of oil that the lady received? What determined how much oil the lady received? Well, it was how much she had to start with, right? Directly proportionate to, no, it wasn't. She just had a little. She ended up with a lot. Well, it was the prophet's anointing. You know, some prophets have a little bit of anointing, and so it could be a little bit. This prophet had a great anointing, so it could be a big miracle, right? No, it had nothing to do with the anointing of the prophet. Well, it had to, it's how much she deserved, how much she had lived faithfully. No, had nothing to do with that. The scripture tells us what it had to do with. Did you catch that part in the story where the prophet said, gather empty jars, don't gather just a few. And then she's filling and the oil keeps flowing. And she gets to the last jar and she says, Bring me another one, and her son says, that's it. There's no more jars. Then the oil stopped flowing. The amount of oil that she ended with was, the the amount of oil that she had was directly tied to how many empty jars she had gathered. Because when the last jar was full, then the oil quit flowing. What does that mean? What does that speak to us? We certainly don't want to make more of this than we should. I certainly don't want us to build our theology on this story of the oil. But there is a powerful lesson here, at least as much as is consistent with the counsel of Scripture. And that is this. I believe that so many times the measure of God's provision in our lives The measure of God's blessing in our lives, the measure of his touch in our lives is directly tied 
to the volume or the capacity of our emptiness. Now, still, what, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that we are so often filled with pride. We're filled with self-sufficiency. We're filled with sin. We just can't let that go. And we're filled with all these other things. And I'm telling you, when you're filled with other things, there's not a lot of room left to be filled with the Spirit like Scripture instructs us to be. We are to walk according to the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. If we're full of other things, we can't be full of the Spirit. And so I think in, in this story, one of the lessons I think is that it's, it's not how many full jars we have in our life that matters, it's how many empty jars we have that we offer to God and say, here God, you fill with your grace, with your sufficiency. He is not impressed with the few full jars that we have setting around in our lives. See, too often I, I'm afraid we approach God not like the broken, desperate, hungry people, whether it's the leper, whether it's the prostitute, whether it's the 5,000 hungry people, but rather we approach him, I'm afraid, more like the Pharisees who instead of passionately pursuing him, we're coming to Jesus with an agenda. And maybe we come with something like, now God, I know you said all have sinned, but I don't sin near as much as the other person. And I just believe, God, that you wanna bless my socks off. And we would never, ever say anything like that. But I think something inside of us has this belief that the, God's blessing in our lives is tied to our performance. That when I perform well enough, then I'm gonna deserve God's salvation, his grace, his filling. Or maybe we're so far the other way that we're wrapped in this shroud of self-doubt and self-deprecation and all we can think about and all we can talk about is how unlucky we are or undeserving we are or unblessed we are. I'm such a failure. People don't like me. I don't like me. I don't feel God close to me anymore. And the thing is, it's still me, me, me. And we're still full of self. Or maybe we're like those at Laodicea, we're in coast mode. We've had some good times, we've had some bad times, and now it just kind of is what it is. We have what we need. We're just gonna coast on into heaven. Listen, God is not impressed by the few full jars we have sitting around in our lives. He wants us to bring our empty jars to him. He longs for us to passionately pursue him. He longs for us to be, to, to be hungry for his touch in our lives. 
Is there a broken relationship? Bring that to me, he says. Is there a sinful habit that you just can't overcome on your own? Bring that to me. Is there a financial need that, that has you buried? Bring that to me. Is there an assignment you've been giving that's just overwhelming you? Bring that to me. Are you lonely? Bring it here. Are you afraid? Bring it here. Are you desperate for some answers in your life? Come on. Have you come to a place of realizing that you can't make it on your own? You need salvation. You need Jesus. Bring it here. If, if you struggle with why do I even exist, bring it here. If you have this crushing burden on you that you, this feels like it's weighing you down and you can't get out from under it, bring it here. Gather all the empty jars in your life. Don't stand there self-righteously protecting the few full jars that you have. Bring your emptiness to me and I will fill it with my grace my strength is made perfect. My power is made perfect in your weakness. I won't claim to know everything you're going through as a body, as individuals in the congregation. But I know where I've been and I bet some of you can relate. I've been in those seasons where everything looks fine on the outside. I'm doing life and my job and just like I normally would, but inside it's eating away at me. And internally I'm a mess and I, I feel like I can't do this. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not cut out for this. Oh, how many times as a pastor did I reach that place where I was just empty? I can't do this. If people really knew how weak or how empty or unspiritual I am, they would run the other way. I've been there, and when, I, when I'm there, I don't want to be there. But I'm also telling you this evening that the reality is if you get to a place in your life where you feel, I have arrived, I am at a place where I have the answers, where I've got it right and I've got it figured out, that's a, actually a pretty awful place to be. If there is no place of need in your life, if there is no calling on your life that has you desperate for Jesus to fill and to touch, It's a bad place to be. The brokenness or the emptiness or the hunger or the desperation that you feel, the pain that you feel, the thing that causes you shame makes you feel the most adequate, doesn't have to be the thing that destroys you. It can be the very thing that opens your life up to the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. Gather the empty jars of your life. Bring them to Jesus. Let him fill you up. This evening as we close our time together,
I don't know if you have a song or something maybe you can play. I would just like to have a time of just where the altar is open. Going back to the story of the leper. Like I said, we don't know a lot of details about that, his story, but one thing we know, it says he knelt before Jesus. And maybe tonight, it's what he's simply asking of you. Kneel before me. Kneel before me. Or maybe he's asking of you, bring the empty jars. Maybe we can just kind of turn this into the widow's house. And the Lord is saying, gather the empty jars of your life. Don't gather just a few. Bring those to me, whatever those are in your life that you need the grace, provision of Jesus to fill. Bring them to me. I know I've got some. I'm going to be right down here. If God nudges you, I invite you to come. Let's bring our empty jars to him. Let him fill us.